Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 137, Life After Lights. Recorded March 30th, 2014, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox. And uh, with me this week is one and a half of your co-hosts, uh, beginning with Mr. Uh, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hey, Mark, and welcome, Element Opiites, far and near. Woohoo! And uh, Chris was with us up until mere moments ago uh, when his wife burst in the room and said, the basement is flooding, come help me move stuff. Uh, so, uh, he mentioned that, I don't know if he mentioned it on the air, I think he did, uh, but he definitely mentioned it to us off the air, that that's a common problem he has, and there, with all the snow melting, uh, and combined with even the slightest amount of rain, uh, equals flooding, and uh, so they've uh, took steps in the past, they've got a pump in the basement that's supposed to pump all that out, but now the water's coming in on the other side, from where the basement, where the pump is, so he's got to go uh, move some stuff. Uh, and if he makes it back, great. If he doesn't, we'll do the show without him. So uh, uh, just so you know, nobody's sick, nobody's injured, just uh, nature reminding us that we are, in fact, the interlopers here. Yes, we <laughs> dwell on the planet. We don't possess it, maybe. <laughs> um, and so Seth has some big news for us. Uh that uh, is of particular interest to this show. Hit it, Seth. Yeah, well, you know, I've talked before the last couple of weeks about maybe trying to go to LinuxCon and doing some type of uh, Indigo, uh, Indiegogo or Kickstarter program to try to raise some money to do that because I'm cheap and poor and in a lot of debt. So one of the questions I asked the – I sent the – um I sent the Linux Foundation just an email asking, saying, hey, you know, I'm a co-host of a podcast. We've got a few thousand listeners. And uh, what are the qualifications for uh, a press credentials? And they responded back and said, what event were you planning on uh, going to? And I said, well, I was thinking about LinuxCon. So then I get an email back, said, well, we processed your order and you should get a confirmation email. So uh, apparently just asking the credentials of the press pass is all it takes to get a press pass. Uh, and so I have a, I am registered to attend LinuxCon. Now I've just got to come up with some way to like pay for the hotel, which I figure is going to be about a thousand dollars for four nights in, and you know, it's in Chicago. So it's not like a motel six. I don't want to stay in a motel six or whatever the Chicago equivalent of that is. So try to brainstorm an idea to see if I can raise some money. Um, and that kind of leads into another thing. I was asking them and I, I invited them to come on to the show and he was like, and the guy I was talking with said, well, uh, what do you want to talk about? So I'll know what person to get. So I want to open that up to the community. If we got someone from the Linux foundation here, what would you like us to talk to them about? Uh, anything in particular? Um, just think about, shoot us some feedback and let us know. Yeah, so that's uh, you, Mark. you know that's it's uh, these are the guys who are the what's the word the overseers of the kernel, and we have the opportunity to get uh, a representative of the chart, probably not Linus, uh, but we have uh, we have the opportunity to get one of their spokespeople on, and uh, you know what what do we want to talk about? My question was why does Linus 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 Lin
why does Linux suck so much on the desktop? I don't think that would be something that they would actually want to talk about, um, largely because the Linux Foundation doesn't do the desktop environments. Um, but that's the burning question, right? And and Seth Seth had a good comeback to that. He's like, you know, they just didn't want to dominate every market. They already dominate the server market and the mobile market, and I'm paraphrasing for, for good reasons uh, for what he said. <laughs> um and you know it's it's a uh, it's like the Persian flaw. We we had to have some reason where we were weak, uh, lest the gods be tempted to smite us. Right. Um, I'm not sure I'm buying it, but that's what we're going to go with for now. And I'm going to steal a little bit of Chris's thunder just because this is too much good news to wait. Uh, uh, Plex uh, is going to join us on a future show. We've talked so much about uh, about Plex. Uh, Chris is a, a zealot. I am uh, a convert, and he reached out to him and said, "Hey guys, uh, we want want to interview somebody on the show." So that's going to happen. We're excited about that because that's that's what I think is uh, one of the coolest open source projects going right now. It's not necessarily Linux based, right? Because I'm, I'm running it on a Windows machine, for example, but it is open source code uh, built on you know web uh, standards. And that's that's a cool thing. It's it's open source that the that the average user can grok, and there's not a lot of that in the world right now. Um, you know, my my five year old doesn't understand much open source technology, but she understands the Plex app and likes it. So I'm I'm excited to have them on the show. And uh, props to Chris for uh, lining that up. Yeah, Chris, way to go. And uh, the the one thing I wanted to talk about is just a pet peeve of mine because I am the Sultan of the Soapbox. I'm allowed to do that. Um, Seth has something in the uh, the show notes uh, that we'll talk about later about area codes, which reminded me of zip codes. Recently, I was filling out a form. I don't remember what it was for, and I was required to put in my state and my um, city and my zip code. And that's been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. Nobody should ever ask for all three of those pieces of information. There are there are databases out there freely available in every language. There's libraries that you could drop d- down into any web language, any anything that will do a zip code lookup. You should have to enter either the city in the state or the zip code. There is never an excuse ever to have a user enter all three of those pieces of information. And it, it grinds my gears um, that people are so lazy to not take advantage of that. Um, the application I work with uh, every day um, is one of those where you can do either one of those. You can enter the city and the state, and it'll fill in the zip, or you can enter the zip, and it'll fill in the city and state. That's a simple um, you know, library. Stop being lazy, coders. That's my rant. Stop being lazy. Stop expecting the users to do your job for you, especially when there's a library where somebody's already done your job for you. All you got to do is hook into it. Ah, but you see, Mark, if you hook into an external library, then you're opening up the possible attack vectors to your application. Because now <laughs> yes, not only the post do you have office. to vet your code, you have to vet that library that they created and make sure that it's secure. Sanitize your inputs. That's all there is. That's all you got to do. I mean, it's super simple. You sanitize your inputs, you send it off to the library, you check the return, you're done. And it's just, it makes me nuts. Um, I'm fine if you make it an Obviously. overwritable field, right? So just in case the library is wrong, make it a field that the user can overwrite. I'm I'm fine with that. But anytime 
and it's just one of those things I grind my teeth every time. Anytime I see a web form that asks me for those three pieces of information, I I die a little inside. So they, that's my rant you for should, today. You should boycott them. Just refuse to use. <laughs> yes, yes. Bank One. I'm not going to get open an account with you because your web coders are lazy. So that's not a bad idea. If, if we did that, though, who could we do business with? Well, the first one who wanted our business and, you know, fix their code, they would get a lot of business if they put in the work. Yeah. Let's, let's plan that, uh, that boycott and see what happens. Uh, in the meantime, I know I'm going to read some listener feedback. Um, and we got a, t- uh, a couple here that are, are almost uh, carbon copies of each other. Guillaume, uh, likes the Linux voice. He says, hello, everyone. As usual, I really enjoy your shows. I was listening to your last episode, and there were two things that I wanted to get back to you. One, a listener asked for a good Linux journal, and you suggested some, but you didn't mention Linux Voice. I'm a subscriber myself, and I enjoy every bit of it. They have a paper and a digital subscription, but one of the best parts is that they give back 50% of their profit to the community. They also release their content to be freely available nine months after their publication. In my opinion, subscribing to it is a great way to vote with your wallet. Link There's linuxvoice.com, and I'll be sure to put that in the notes. And number two, he said, Chris uh, wanted a GUI way to edit the LXDE menu, and I wanted to let him know that he could do so with LX menu editor also known as lx med it's not in the ubuntu repos but to install it you only have to extract a tar.gz file and run the script i had some permission problems with it but nothing unsolvable beside that everything worked well all right i'm going to stop right there and say that is what's wrong with the open source community guillaume i'm picking on you here when you say it's not in the repository. You have to go download a file, open it, and unzip it, and then you're, there's going to be some permission problems likely, but not not a big deal. That's the same as saying it doesn't exist, in in my opinion. For the everyday Linux user that we're talking about here, those words you just said are exactly the same thing as it doesn't exist. What do you think, Seth? No, I totally agree with you. It's like, oh, it's no problem. You just got to fill out these 14 different steps in this exact order because if, and if you don't type everything exactly right, you'll end up hosing your system. But other than that, it's a piece of cake. Like, no worries. Like when a guy says that the way to fix your driver is to compile a new kernel. What? No, that's not an answer. So, Guillaume, I know you meant well, and obviously you're talking to the command, guy, command line godfather. He can handle these things. So, but I'm just taking this opportunity to point out um, that our our community, and I, I include myself in it, have sometimes lost sight of what regular people think. And when regular people see that, they think, what? I don't, what? So, anyway. You, yeah. Uh, wait, huh? Wait a minute. Is that turning it off and back on? Is that what you mean? I don't understand. Have you checked the power cable? Uh, so in the, moving on with Guillaume's email, it says, oh, and I just remembered something. If you do get in touch with someone from the Peppermint Project, could you ask them why they chose to use XFCE Windows Manager in their distribution instead of OpenBox, as is usually the case with LXDE? I'm a bit curious to hear about it. So, uh, uh, Seth, have you reached out to them yet? I know you were going to. Um, Chris no, I have not. What? I think Chris was the one going to reach out to him. Somebody was going to do that. We'll, we'll make sure yeah. that happens, Guillaume. If we get him on, I'll be sure that we ask that question. 
Uh, and then Mike writes in to offer another vote for Linux Voice. He says, hi there. In the last show, a listener asked about Linux magazines, and I'd like to point him and you in the direction of Linux Voice, a new mag made in the UK by the former crew of Linux Format. They just got their second issue out. You can subscribe digitally or get a paper subscription or buy in stores at a place called Barnes & Noble in the U.S. Sounds like something out of a Harry Potter. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> Linux Voice is different from other Macs because, one, 50% of their profits will go to free software projects that the readers choose, and two, all the contents of each issue will be freely licensed by com- uh, Creative Commons nine months after publication, and three, they're independent so they don't need to please corporate bosses or shareholders. Uh, people behind it are well-seasoned Linux journalists, so Linux Voice is a top-class reading from issue one. Uh, more info at linuxvoice.com. And no, I don't get paid for writing this. Thanks for the amazing podcast, Mike. So there's two enthusiastic thumbs up for Linux Voice from Mike and Guillaume. Yeah, and I just wanted to take the time here to mention why I did not talk about them on last week's episode. And it's simply because I had never heard of them. There you go. So, well, they were only one episode uh, out, so I think we can be forgiven for that. Yeah, issue two just uh, is out as of March 27th. So... All right, and moving right along, our old friend Dowdle uh, writes in with some comments about OS X, as I'm now going to call it from now on. Uh, it says, listening to EDL 135 and the feedback from the listener griping about people calling Mac OS X Mac OS X, the worst place I ever saw that, well, heard that, was in the audiobook of the authorized Steve Jobs biography. Yes, the paid reader dude for that audiobook says OS X. And the, pronu- the production staff of the audiobook didn't catch the mistake. Steve Jobs by Walter I- Isaacson, read by Dylan Baker. Shame on you, Dylan Baker. That's all I have to say. I, I will say my, yeah, my OS X, my OS Ten X. That's what it is from now on. OS Ten X. Um, Can we say OS X Ten? Would that be better? That's fine. Yeah, either one works. Um, I've been listening to the Ender series uh, on audiobook. I've, I'm like 10 books into it now. Uh, so I've been, uh, you know, I've, I'm a subscriber to audible.com. I've talked about that before. Uh, and I think it's a great deal. Uh, I really enjoy it. But anyway, the what they do is they break up the chapters um, among different readers. And so each character has its own voice, more or less. Uh, within the section. So when Peter is speaking, you can, there's generally one or two people who voice that. But it's obvious they didn't get those people together and have any production meetings because they will pronounce the same word differently between chapters of the book, depending on who's reading it. Not only that, but hmm. between books. So in book one, they pronounce something one way. In book two, they pronounce it another way. In book three, they're back to the first way they said it. In book four, they say it both ways, depending on who's reading it. Uh, yeah, audiobooks are not uh, gone over with the continuity comb that movies are. And, uh, of course, one of my favorite things to do is pull, uh, pick out continuity problems in movies. Uh, he opened that bag of chips three times during that conversation, uh, things like that. But, uh, yeah, in the audiobook world, uh, I will agree that they kind of play flat, fast and loose with that sort of stuff. Well, you know, and a lot of times... Or at least tradi- historically, the audiobook has been kind of an afterthought. So they didn't really address, they didn't hold it to the same quality standards. And I think that that is starting to change in the industry. So and going of, forward, you'll probably see less of that. Of course, when you're reading a word that the writer made up, right? It's a, it's a, it's a made up word that doesn't exist outside of the book. 
it's understandable that there's no context and they have to make up a word. But, you know, get together and say, you know, give each actor, voice actor a list and say, this is how we're going to pronounce these words. This is how we're going to pronounce these names. Um, and, you know, it just, it bugs me. And it really, it immediately takes me out of the story. Um, like one of them is, uh, the, the whole series is called the, the Hegemon series, Shadow of the Hegemon. Uh, um, I can't even remember. There's, there's two, there's a couple of them, but the Hegemon is, is, is like a supreme world leader in the book. Well, apparently there's one actor who couldn't say the word Hegemon right. That's fairly important if you're reading a book called Shadow of the Hegemon. So every time he right. said the word, they dubbed in one of the actors, other actors, saying the word. So he'd be, he would be reading along, and he's got this beautiful, uh, wonderful, golden voice, and then it would be another equally beautiful, wonderful, golden voice, but totally different guy saying just that one word. And it just, it, talk about taking you out of the story. You're there, you're in the universe, your mind is drawing the picture, you're in the action, and then, whoa, that's a whole different voice there. And it just, uh, anyway, Audible is top-notch. But right now, Top Notch has a lot to be uh, to to be gained, in my opinion, in the state of the audiobook world. Definitely, I, I can think. You know, it's a movie you've seen at the theater, and whenever they show it on TV, you know, you hear Eddie Murphy talking, <laughs> and whenever it's a cuss word in the movie, yeah. hey man, how's it going, you dude? How are right. you? You know, it's just like a totally different word by a totally different person. So yeah, it, it will, and it will totally take you out of the moment. I'm going to kick your butt. Uh, yeah. That's not what he said. Anyway, moving right along. Uh, Joe uh, asks if Boris is power hungry. He says, during my research about the P4 and firewall distributions, uh, I, and that's from another email he sent that I'll read later on. I found several forums uh, posting of people complaining about what a power hog the P4 is. And I have to think that this is true of the later generations of Pentium 4 with hyper-threading that was rated at 115 watts. Uh, My vintage P4 is rated about 59 watts. Supposedly, the typical power consumption of a Core 2 Duo is 65 watts. Um, uh, Excuse me. The the typical power consumption of a Core 2 Duo rated at 65 watts, is around 52 watts. This leads me to believe that my P4 is no more of a power hog than a Core 2 Duo. It doesn't have the speed stepping to save power when idling, but it, I can't tell that Untangle server lets the CPU idle. Uh, I'm too cheap to buy a kilowatt meter to test it, so I can't say how much power the box uses. I can't figure out why power consumption issue is so common on the forums. Most always-on devices, like a firewall, NAS, server, home theater, PC, uh, will have some guys mentioning the power usage as a factor in his hardware selection. A common paraphrased example, I used to run PFSense on a P4, but it was a power hog, so I switched to an Atom. I wouldn't think a 100-watt CPU was such a big deal, except that I see this topic in most forums. Sure, commercial power um, is more expensive than residential power, and hotter machines mean more HVAC costs for the enterprise, but it seems like much ado about not much. Are guys really going out and spending a few hundred dollars on new hardware just to save a few dollars each month on the electric bill? I feel like I'm missing something. I'd like to hear your opinions on why electricity consumption is such a common theme running on forums for always-on boxes. Another reason I ask is because there are a ton of old P4 and Athlon XP boxes out there 
because Windows XP support is going away, many people will decide to replace with a new machine, and the old box will be sent to an e-waste recycler. Is that the best use of these old machines? Are they too inefficient to be used as a Boris box or a file server or even a light-duty desktop for grandma's Facebook and email? Seems a shame to throw away something that could be useful, unless they really are power hogs that aren't worth the electricity they use. Mark, does power consumption and cost factor into your opinion about the myth of obsolescence? Chris, you've said that your PF Sense box is on a P4. Uh, if it's one of the later, hotter, power-hungry ones, or is it an older one? Is it so expensive to run that you want to switch to a more efficient hardware? Can you even tell? Of course, where Chris lives, having a firewall could that could double as a space heater may be a welcome fe- feature. Thanks for the pod- podcast. Kind regards, Joe. Uh, Joe, that was uh, uh, eloquent and well-spoken. And, you know, I think my answer to your underlying question, why is this a big deal, is because of the guys that you're reading from. These guys live in the world of minutiae. They're excited about picking apart the one thing and optimizing the one thing. If they can get one more CPU cycle out of it, they will. If they can get one watt less usage, they will. But to me, I don't care. I really don't care. Um, I think the difference between you know, the hottest server out there and an atom processor over the course of 10 years of residential use is not worth the cost of buying a new machine at all. I mean, I mean if you're, the money you would quote-unquote save by spending money is, is non-existent, I think. So just, you know, use what you've got. You're doing better, you know, if you're, if you're a Greenpeace guy and you're a tree hugger, you're doing better by the environment not sending something to the landfill even if it uses more power that's that's my thought also i hate in um uh complex fluorescent bulbs i want a hundred watt filament there heating up the room that's i'm an old guy that's what i want uh seth what are your thoughts um well i i'll give you two things number one the old you know true the power consumption might be the same but it's going to take the p4 longer to do something than it would the newer computers so therefore even processing the same amount of data will take it longer thus using more power so that's one of the reasons that you see their power numbers is higher and number two the people selling the new machines have got to create demand for their product yeah it's like fins on a car demand yeah you know the easy way to create demand is to say well that old machine is a power hog you need to get rid of that and get something else that's going to be newer better leaner meaner better for the environment don't you love the planet you should work for apple um something like that and then that way that allows them to sell their things by creating a false demand so and then a lot of what mark said i don't really see the need you know I think moving your old computers out of your main computer role and either into a backup machine or repurposing it as an appliance is a much better use than, you know, uh, recycling it somewhere. You know, sell it to somebody who that's better than what they have. Um, So I, I agree with Mark. I don't see, you know, if you're buying a brand new machine, Sure, if all things being equal, get the one that's a lower power rating or, you know, a more efficient power rating. But don't get rid of what you have because you're going to save, you know, 10 cents a year in power. You know, you come out losing money that way. Now, the for my uh, home theater PC, I went with an Atom, which I don't even think they're making Atoms anymore. Uh, it's a few years old because I wanted uh, fanless. 
and you're not going to get fanless with any P series or beyond. It's just never going to happen. Uh, so there, there is something there. Uh, I wanted the noise to be low. Um, in, in a, like your little, uh, D link router, that is probably a 386, maybe even 286 chip, uh, running that thing. Um, so, and that's how they can get it so small and, and no fans and, and 12 volt power consumption, uh, is because they're using, uh, a very old, uh, processor. I remember an interesting statistic. I'm going to get this wrong, but the, the spirit of it is right. Uh, the original Mac, uh, I think it was the L30 chip, um, that, uh, that they made in the, the early nineties in like 2005 or somewhere around there. They sold five times as many of those chips as they ever did in in Macs. I, Motorola, I think, was the company that made those. And it's not because anybody's using them as for computers anymore, but they're putting them in in ovens and blenders and washing machines now. Uh, because the thing that used to be cutting edge technology is now still just enough for the fuzzy logic of a washing machine to figure out how long it should suds your clothes. Um, so there's, there's a long tail of technology like that, these older things. And one of the benefits, obviously, is, is they were built under certain constraints. And so those constraints become benefits later in terms of power consumption and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, what's, what excites me is when the blender is running an Athlon XP. You know, that we're going to get to that world, right? We're going to get to the world where the dumbest processor we have is a quad core uh, multi-gigabit processor. Right. And that's cool to be. I don't know what that world's going to look like, but I'm excited to live in it. All right, so that's it. Don't worry about it, Joe. Uh, the reason you see it in the forum, and probably all the forums you read is one guy <laughs> who's making that same post under different names in each of the forums. Uh, but no, I know there are people who, yeah, they'll go out and spend $700 on a, a scientific grade watt meter to save $10 a year on their hardware. Whatever. Cause it, it's the principle of the thing. Dead gummit. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, those are the guys who, uh, you know, in the, in the automotive world, they're the guys who want to, you know, get a 600 horsepower out of a, of a V8, you know, 400, uh, CC V8. They're, they're all about squeezing everything out of it. And, you know, they're, they're geeks in all walks of life. That just happens to be their thing uh, in that. So I wouldn't worry about it. Um, and moving right along, Mike likes Russians. He says, how very, very strange. The first name I ever used for a Linux box was Boris. And that was followed by Natasha, Olga, Natalia, Petri, and Sasha. Boris and all the others are still alive except for Natasha, who died from a lightning strike last fall. By the way, Boris is at least 12 years old. I'm very surprised that someone else uses Russian names for their machines. It shows great tastes, Mike. Uh, well, Mike, the, the reason I call it the Boris box is it goes back to the origins of the show. You got to go back to listen to, I think it's episode 39, the Boris box. There's the explanation there for the name. And it actually comes from another guy in his experience with an oven repairman. So it doesn't, it, it, it totally doesn't come from, uh, anything like that. In fact, my machines, um, uh, I'm from Texas and I, I've grown up in rural areas all my life. So my machines are all named things like Bubba, uh, Beauregard, 
Aloysius. <laughs> Those are the things I name my computers just because it's funny to me. So I have the the redneck crew uh, around my house. Uh, but yeah, the the Russians. That's a fine thing, and that's cool. But I can't take credit for it. It doesn't have anything to do with my predilection for using Russian names. Way to work predilection into the podcast, <laughs> right. Mark. Extra points for you. I want to bet there. Um, the next thing I have to say is aluminum siding. Uh, Seth, what do you call your machines when you're naming them? Um, I like I have one called Mini Me. Um, another one is called Mad Lab. So uh, just whatever random bit of trivia is flowing through my head when I name a machine. I don't have some type of naming convention I use, unfortunately. Maybe I should come up with one. Yeah, well, where I used to work, uh, the uh, you know it was a it was a school system, and the mascot was the warrior. So all of my servers were racially insensitive uh, uh, monikers. Um, you know, there was uh, brave and warrior and tomahawk and Comanche and Apache and uh, uh, Sioux, uh, and I had those things there, just you know for no reason. I, I just I like everything to match, you know. And at home, they're all rednecks. Uh, at work, they were, and and where I work now, they're named things like Server Seven. Server 93. And those, it's like, come on, guys. You can do better. Of course, having said that, my home theater PC is named Home Theater PC. So I, I have, I'm just as bad. And this, this laptop over here to my left is called Podcast Laptop. So I don't, I don't always go creative either. The one I'm using right now, uh, when I got it, it had the name Acer PC. And that's what it is still named today, Acer PC. Uh, I work for a district that had the Tigers as a mascot, so it was kind of cool. I researched, well, what what different types of Tigers are there? And so I started naming the servers after all the different Tiger species I could find. So, you know, I learned something, and I set something up that the next person inherited and probably went, what idiot came up with these names? <laughs> uh, okay, so last thing here, we have a, a voicemail from our good friend, the door-to-door geek. Hello, Mark. Hello, Seth. Hello, Chris. Door-to-door geek, a.k.a. Steve McLaughlin. Two quick one. What's that purchased by Facebook? It's easy. Right now, the largest percentage of users on Facebook is grandparents. They're trying to uh, finagle their numbers. They're trying to shift their numbers to make it appear like more young people are using Facebook and Facebook products so they can make more money off of people. Two, I got a question about Mozilla and ads. I'm almost feeling like the guy who says, well, if you don't vote, you have no right to come to complain about the, about our government. And what I mean is, I'm almost tempted to say, if you've never donated money to Mozilla, you have no right to complain about Firefox changing what it's doing. You have no voice in what it does. And I'm really starting to believe that more and more and more. I mean, I've used Firefox off and on for, what, I don't even know, 15 years, something like that? And, uh, and, and I've never once donated to them. So how much right do I have to complain? about that company. I'm starting to think I have no right to complain at all. I should just take my luck, say thank you, and download their browser yet again. 
All right, guys. Keep up the great work. All right. So there was a uh, varied bit of uh, feedback there from Dora. Uh, I, I believe it was about Facebook buying Snapchat. Was it first? It's it was kind of WhatsApp. Uh, WhatsApp. That's right. He was obviously on his phone uh, in the car, so uh, I had a hard time picking out some of that. Uh, so, Seth, what are your comments on that, if any? Well, number one, um, I still think they, I still think the developers of WhatsApp stole. I don't know how. I think maybe what happened is they hacked Facebook and stole 20 million and said, we'll agree to sell with or ex or publish our exploit. So maybe that's what happened. I still think they way overpaid. Um, but in so as you far think they as blackmailed the them. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's, that's the best possible explanation of why they purchased them for that amount of money has to be something there that's not coming to light um anyway that's my conspiracy theory for the week uh for those of you keeping track at home uh is that whatsapp blackmailed facebook um and as far as the other one you know i can understand where he's coming from but i'm going to throw this argument back at you that um if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. And if they do something that causes people to quit using their product, then they won't be making any money by the ads they are trying to sell. So while yes, and there comes a point, you know, you get what you pay for. It's free for a reason. The other point is if it becomes too ad supported, I will look for an alternative browser. So, if, and like I said, I don't have a problem with them doing ads. I want to see how it comes out and if it just totally just, um, just destroys my user experience. And, and my comment to piggyback on that is, no, I have not uh, directly given money to the Mozilla Foundation, but I've used that search bar uh, in the top of Firefox hundreds of millions of times uh, since they put it in there. And every time I do that, they make a small amount of money off of me. I could go straight to google.com and do my searches. I could do it right there. Um, you know, uh, I, I started saying the awesome bar, but they count that too. Uh, there are lots of other ways I could do it, but I choose to use the awesome bar or their search applets because I know it supports Firefox. When I'm using IE, I don't do that. I go to www.google.com and type my search there. It's my own little personal stand against the man. The six times a year I'm forced to use IE. Actually, I use it every day at work, grr. Um, but anyway, uh, so it's, it's not accurate to say that I've never given anything to Mozilla and that I don't have a voice in what they say. I am a part of their revenue stream. Uh, by using that tool and I don't have to do it and I choose to just like people might choose to do their shopping at elementopi.com slash Amazon instead of Amazon straight. Um, that's a choice that they make. Uh, Google, uh, excuse me, uh, Firefox has made that easy for me, but that, but it's still my choice to do it. Uh, and in fact, I use them over say Chrome for that reason. In fact, I do my searching let, let me give you an example. Say I'm doing a multi-level search, right? The first one, I use the box. Then I'm at the Google page. I don't use the search on the Google page if I need to refine my search. I go back to that box up at the top right corner because I know that gives them money. Um, it's an infinitesimal amount of money, but when you add up all the money I've ever uh, made for them when I do that, it's probably more than a donate, donation I would have ever made in the first place. 
So you're right in that if you don't um, contribute, you have no right to complain. But I am a contributor in that way. Also, I've been an evangelist of Firefox since it was called Firebird. Back when it was a single unzip file, um, I was telling people about it and putting it on other people's computers. So I've, I've done my bit for king and country there. And I feel I have a stake in the product. And if they, they mar it, I feel I have a right to be um, upset about it. Okay. Amen, no brother. Woohoo. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't think about that, but I use the awesome bar a lot for searches as well. Um, so, uh, you know, and I, I do, I tell people about the awesomeness of Firefox over the crappiness of IE and the proprietary nature of Chrome that I'm beginning to like less. Um, but, so, you know, I mean, yeah, there, there's many ways to support and clicking a donate button is one way. Yeah. So, right idea, Door, but um, I don't think I agree with you on this one. It's okay. We're allowed to disagree once. That's our one. Um, (laughs) Turkey disagrees with the internet, apparently, and decided they want to break it. This is yet another story of a wrong-headed government thinking they can control the internet. Uh, Exactly. And that's, you know, they, they don't like Twitter. Because, um, basically dissidents are taking the Twitter to say how stupid, um, Turkey is. And so they're like, well, we're blocking Twitter. And now they're kind of blocking everything, um, and redirecting, um, to their internal DNS servers. So that way they can not only redirect you to the site, but they can get IP addresses of who's doing the searching to kind of crack down on things. So, you know, it's, it's nothing that, any country can do you know it's not like they're doing some i can't believe they're doing that it's it's like anybody can do this um turkey's just decided to do it on their um on their stuff so essentially what they're doing is at the government firewall so right and if if you want to leave turkey there's a handful of ways you can do that Uh, just like it there are a handful of, of conduits out of the u.s um you know and the u.s as I understand it, has a kill switch protocol where all of those people have agreed to isolate the U.S. from from the other from outside the continent if we ask them to. That means they kill satellite feeds, they kill transatlantic cables. Well, Turkey, being a small country, there are fewer fewer feeds going in, and what they have done is set up uh, essentially country level packet sniffers that are sniff, sniffing and reforming uh, DNS packets. Uh, so particularly if you're using the 8.8.8 or the 8.4.4 Google one, they look for that in particular, but, uh, also the article says that they're, they're looking at, uh, um, expanding that to essentially try to hijack all DNS. And when you're a totalitarian regime, I'm not saying Turkey is, um, but if this were a, a truly totalitarian regime, they have that kind of control over all the ISPs and they can do that. Uh, China, for example, you know they they're they're well known to have the Great Firewall of China. They they choose very carefully what goes into their country and what goes out of their country. And you know I'm okay with that. They're a sovereign nation. They're allowed to do that as long as their people allow them to do that. They have that right. But as was famously said uh, before, the internet sees censorship as damage and routes around it. 
uh, there there are a dozen ways I can think of off the top of my head to circumvent this. So it's false security. It's ineffective. The dissidents are still going to get their message out, but now Turkey just looks like a bunch of idiots. Well, I don't know if it's totally ineffective because the the technologically savvy person is going to know how to get around it, but the the average computer user isn't going to know right. how to get around it. So they're not going to get that alternative news stream and they're going to think, oh, well, there must not be a problem because I'm not hearing about it. Um, but yeah, you know, just an example, if you have some type of VPN service or if you were using Tor, um, they haven't, you know, those are still working, has ways to get out. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's, it, it is effective. If it wasn't effective, they wouldn't do it. China is highly effective, but we all still know what goes on in China. So it's not 100% effective. Um, right. We know, but does the average Chinese citizen know? And, and, and do they know or do they, do they have a hunch? Yeah. Uh, you ever ask yourself, Seth, uh, what is the number one selling laptop on Amazon? Well, apparently you do because you put it in today's notes. Yeah, uh, man, I, I, I lay awake at nights contemplating such things. Uh, no, actually, th- there was a news story that was talking about how, you know, Windows 8 isn't selling at all. You only have Microsoft's word for it. And so they linked to the Amazon results. And I'm glad I clicked on the results because in just a couple of days since that story came out, the results have changed. Um, so if you go into... and you know, there's many different metrics. It's kind of hard to get exact numbers, but we're talking laptops here. Uh, Amazon posts their best sellers in laptop computers. And as of right now, two out of the top three are Chromebooks. And the, the, and the third one, is Android. Well, no, the second one is the, the Asus Transformer T100. That's Windows. That's actually oh, that's the, Windows 8. The, okay. Yeah. That's the same one I have. It's, it's a transformable tablet that, um, you know, it's a tablet, but it has a dockable keyboard that has a USB three port on it. Um, so, and then, you know, you go on and then you get some windows and other Chromebooks below that, but the top, you know, so windows, at least as far as Amazon is concerned, again, I'm not, you can predict, but you can't say with certainty that this would carry across all sectors, um, all retailers, but windows is not the number one seller, um, on their machine, um, on in their store um you know and the one thing there's one mac book in here and it's all the way down at 10th place so you know that's you know people talk about how apple the the 16 inch macbook 13 inch macbook pro is number 16 so it's there too oh it is okay um what what i find interesting looking at these is price doesn't seem to be a factor the top four are cheap but there are cheaper ones below it and there are expensive ones mixed in there. Price does not seem to be the factor. If it was, you'd expect to see the top, uh, the cheapest ones being at the top and the more expensive ones at the bottom. But, uh, for example, number 15 is a $279 Chromebook and number 16 is a $1,470, uh, MacBook. So they're right there side by side, uh, at 15 and 16 and number 17 doesn't have a price. Number 18 is another $200 Chromebook. So right. uh, that I find that interesting because the the conventional wisdom is that people buy based on price. 
Yeah. Now the number one seller is a $199 Chromebook. So, you know, I'm sure there is something to say to that, but, and then again, you know, there's no data on here. Is this your primary computer? Is this replacing your primary computer? Is this something you just had to have something to shut your kid up? Um, you know, so there's no data along those lines. This is only a snapshot and therefore it's limited, but it does tell a story. And that's, you know, maybe windows is not the dominant player, um, in consumer computing. Um, you know, cause you can't really just say computers because tablets now are computers. You can yeah. do everything on a tablet pretty much that you can do on a computer because you can access the cloud where any application will run. So, you know, and windows again, you know, there are many windows books here, so it's not like nobody's buying windows, but they're not the 800 pound gorilla on steroids anymore. Right. Yeah. It's the, the old saw was nobody ever got fired for for buying uh, Microsoft. That's probably still true, but it's right. not necessarily the first choice anymore. Certainly in education, um, and uh, I I don't see it changing quickly in business, but it is changing in business. Um, I I know at my company, uh, BlackBerry finally broke its hold, and now they're they're there are corporate owned iPhones. Uh, which is, you know, something I never thought I'd see. Right. Uh, And that's something, yeah, I was going to say my company went, you know, has been on iPhones now and there are, there are very few Blackberries left and it's probably just because those particular contracts aren't up yet. So the next thing uh, in the story is I have uh, long lamented the fact that ButterFS isn't ready yet. And and they've had a long time. And in fact, I remember Door to Door took me to task um, uh, about that, saying it's been a decade. It's it's takes a decade for a file system. It's finally ready. Well, Facebook tends to agree with the Door to Door geek that ButterFS is ready to go. Maybe yes, they are beginning the process to trial the Butters uh, Butter Linux file system in its production data centers. So apparently they've already done some development of it, um, you know, in, cause I'm sure, well, I can't say I'm sure, but I would think a company the size of Facebook with the technological knowledge of the people who work there would know you don't test something in production, but they're going to be trialing it in their production environment. So they're means they must have liked what they've seen. Um, at, at the very least, somebody pitched them something or it was a really good story they read on the internet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're, uh, they're just, they're trialing it. So if anything, it'll be a great stress test because tons of people use Facebook yeah. and we'll see if it holds up to that kind of, uh, we'll see if it holds up to that kind of threat, uh, that kind of stress. And and if I remember correctly, Microsoft, uh, excuse me, Facebook recently transitioned or partially transitioned from a SQL database to the Cassandra NoSQL database. Um, and so they're you know they're definitely willing to pioneer things that are different. And of course, they're all about scale. They have a billion active users. Uh, scale is important to them. And and ButterFS um, has a lot of overhead to it but has a lot of benefit to it. And so I, I consider this a good thing. When when Facebook decides that a billion users 
are ready to go on ButterFS, and they're not right now. They're trialing it. They're going to roll it out here and there. But assuming they give it to the, the green light a couple of years from now, that's uh, that's when I think you can say ButterFS is right. Butter, by the way, it's B-T-R-F-S. The, we call it Butter, but it's B-T-R-F-S. And I'm sure those letters have names. Uh, I'm sure it's an acronym of some sort. But uh, generally, it's just referred to as Butter. Yeah, they actually... Um it's actually in here. The acronym BTRFS stands for B Tree File System. That's, yeah, butter that's what butter. it stands for. Yeah. <laughs> Cause then yes, what's B Tree? Um, and you would have to Google that. Feel free to, if you would like, and send us an email telling us about it. Um, who says Microsoft doesn't open source their code? They do, in fact, open source their code 30 years later. Yes, um, this announcement is March 25th, 2014. The Computer History Museum announced today that it has, with permission from Microsoft Corporation, made available original source code for two historic programs. MS-DOS, um, the 1982 disk operating system for IBM-compatible personal computers, and Word for Windows, the 1990 Windows-based version of their Word processor. So... I just wanted to share. Uh, way to go, Microsoft. Better late than never. Uh, they are joining the open source community, rushing in, you know, one toenail at a time. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to step back into 1990, um, as some would say OpenOffice already has, uh, you, can, uh, you can get the Ouch. source code for Word for Windows. You know, I wonder if there's any of it still in word today i i can't imagine i mean that's 16-bit code um i I can't imagine that there's anything that hasn't already been supplanted by something better that's open you know i it would just be cool i wish i wish somebody you know and don't you know not necessarily say but say you know there are six lines of code from the original version still you know just something like that and again, I'm more just curious than anything. Uh, yes, these these four different remarks um, are still in the code today. Well, that backwards floppy save icon is still there after all these years. Right. I don't know if anybody's ever. Well, I'm sure somebody's noticed it, but the 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 door on the floppy disk is backwards. Um, and I was I was training somebody uh, on the software that I uh, train on recently, and they asked me the question, "What what is that thing?" This was a young user, 20s. I said, you need to click the save icon. Well, which one is that? What's well, the, it's the floppy disk. What? It's this button here. <laughs> Why do we still use that? Maybe we should use a USB stick instead, but, uh, you know, or I don't, a cross for saving. I, I don't know. I don't know what a better icon is, but nobody knows what a floppy disk is anymore. Wow. Dude, man, I just want to hang my head in disgust at my age now. So I yeah, haven't thought of, of that, but one of my co coworkers calls me the old man because uh, you know it's like I remember a time before you know, everything, and, and he'll he'll come. What was it like before the internet? <laughs> I remember when floppy disks were actually floppy. Yes, and you could get two of them, top and bottom, and you had to identify disk A, disk B. In fact, that was a discussion I had recently. Um, he just sort of out of blue, because he knew I would know. 
said, why is the disk on a computer always called the C drive? Because A and B were floppies. Everybody knows that. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm so old. <laughs> oh, you know, here's some other things that other people know. Hypervisors are 100% secure. Maybe. Yeah. Um. I just, I came across this story and I wanted to share. Again, I'm not you know, I'm not trying to spread fear, but you know, so much of the web and and they make a good point here. You know, your applications that you that your bank has virtualized, where everything is hosted on the cloud at Amazon. You know, there's also some beginning web designers poorly written PHP module. Um, what happens if some hacker takes control of that VM and then is able to somehow break into the hypervisor that controls the VM. Well, if they can do that, they would then have access to every machine in that hypervisor. And again, it's not that there are known vulnerabilities in hypervisors, but you know, the same people who wrote the software for the operating systems are the same people who wrote the code for hypervisors. So to think that it is bulletproof is, um, you know, would be, um, uh, I can't even think of the foolish. word foolish. Uh, that that's a word, but the word that you don't know something, uh, innocent, ignorant. ignorant yeah. That's sorry. My brain <laughs> is shut down. Uh, but yeah, so that would be ignorant and short sighted at best. So just be, um, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. It made me think. And as of right now, there's really no way to detect it. You know, if you have access to a machine, you can look at the network card and kind of know if that machine is a bare metal machine or if that machine is a hypervisor by your network interface, you know. Um so if you can know that you're on a hypervisor and, you know, there's different hypervisors. Microsoft has one called Hyper-V. Uh, VM has their, has a few. And then there's a KVM has a bare metal one as well. So I'm not just targeting Microsoft and saying that the Microsoft Hyper-V is what, but any of them have the capability to be uh, vulnerable to an attack. And as of right now, I don't know of any way to secure a hypervisor against an attack from a compromised guest OS. Yeah. It's so low level, it would be difficult to get at it for both the good guy and the bad guy. Right. Okay. Um, Seth, we're going to do two more. Pick two and and highlight it, and I'll lead into it. Okay. The last one looks interesting, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I I actually... I want to do the the last two there. The last two. Okay. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, <laughs> um, how? Th- here, here we go. Ready? This is my ready. first class A number one lead in. Get ready. This is this is top dog. This is professional. How the netbook changed Facebook. Yes, because apparently Facebook had this design that was all laid out and they had it all pretty fine and it was going to revolutionize the way you view Facebook. Well, um, some people came out and said, well, they made it too good. And so they were making, they were going to make less money from ads. So they changed it. Well, somebody from Facebook said, nope. 
actually we would have made more money on ads. But what we found out is that while you and I have these 27 inch monitors because we're so awesome, the rest of the world isn't quite as uh, good as us. And they only have like a 10 inch screen and a cheap netbook running it. So the new interface won't look good on lower powered hardware with smaller screens. So therefore we had to redesign it to this. So thank you everybody who bought a netbook. You kept Facebook from being total crap. Um, is my but, point. You know, that's an interesting design challenge. And I, I don't do a lot of web coding, but I do enough to know that it is really hard to make a website that is functional and attractive, both on a 27 inch monitor and a five inch, uh, uh, handheld device. Right. Uh, and so Apple, uh, uh, Facebook, you know, their developers have, I assume, high end equipment. And so I, I get, I, congratulations, kudos to them for dog fooding a little bit and, and saying, you know what, the most of the world doesn't have this. Most of the world, you, Facebook's through a 10 inch tablet or a small netbook or something like that. Um, cause, you know, I, it still bugs me that back in the days when, uh, 1024 by 768 was becoming the standard, I, I had a monitor that could only do 800 by 600 and I have to scroll left and right to read text on a page. You know, we, um, you'd think we've learned that lesson, but we haven't really. I mean, anybody who's tried to use, uh, to pull up a web page on a, on a phone knows that we haven't learned that lesson. Uh, text right. still doesn't flow and you still have to scroll. Um, so, you know, I, kudos to, to Facebook on this one for, for once putting the end user first. Yeah. At least, you know, that's what they said and they would never lie because they're the other company <laughs> that does no evil. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You know, it's like, I can see why they didn't want you to go to the web browser on your iPhone, um, because you could not use Facebook, uh, through, through any web browser on your iPhone. It would simply be too small. So they came up with an app for mobile devices. But, um, when I got my transformer tablet, um, my Android one, I downloaded the Facebook app and I pulled it up and I went, Oh my gosh, this is crap. So I opened up my web browser and I went <laughs> yeah. to www.facebook.com and I went, Oh, look, I have actual Facebook on my tablet instead of that crappy, crummy app. So it, it looked good on the, you know, and again, that's like the 10 inch tablet. Um, and the same thing. And, but actually I'm finding on my Windows tablet, the Windows app is actually pretty good. So I have gone to it both on the web. And through the Windows app, and I got to say, I find most of my time uh, in not that I spend tons of time in Facebook anymore, but most of my Facebook time on that tablet is done through the app. So maybe they've uh, either their window app is much better or they've improved all their apps. Yeah, the Android one is still terrible. It's what my wife uses and it. She has to force close it when she's done or it will kill the battery. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. And I keep telling her, just go to the Web page. Yeah, I like the app. I don't know why she likes the app, but she does. This is something you don't say often, uh, but in this rare case, porn was good for the general public at large. Yes, this is a case of uncommon sense. Somebody must have tripped over it on their way to the courtroom. So as much as I would love to see a trend, this is probably just another one-off thing. But a United States judge has ruled that an IP address cannot be tied to a person despite the best efforts of copyright trolls. And then it goes into the story, but basically... um 
there's nothing that links the IP address location to the identity of the person actually downloading and viewing the plaintiff's videos and establishing whether that person lives in this district. So basically what happened was, um, you know, somebody, somebody downloaded some illegal or copyrighted porn from free from some torrent site and the copyright trolls found out and they well, sued let's, let's and back said, up a little bit and talk about this particular copyright okay. troll they only go after people downloading porn because right. they know that that most people who download porn aren't proud of their porn downloading activities so they scour the web looking for people who are downloading copyrighted porn and only attack those people and threaten to put their browsing history, uh, make it public. And they say, if you don't settle, we will embarrass you in court, uh, reverend. Uh, and we will, you know, we will make sure that everybody knows what you do, uh, in your home when you're alone because we can prove it, uh, and, you know, pay up. And that, you know, as, as trollish a behavior as, as, uh, tracking down copyright people is that goes even farther that's like the trolls that even the trolls don't respect and so their right. their thing was we have we have the ip address we logged it and we want to ask the isp who owned this address at this time and we, we, we want to go after them and the judge said no all that tells you is what the endpoint of the traffic was it doesn't tell you who actually did it yay for common sense um you know, so the, that that if this could be used as precedent for case law in the future, uh, this could protect people operating tour exit nodes, for example. It re- yeah, it really could, um, because you know, and I'm actually glad the judge wasn't convinced by their argument because what happens if you have a Wi-Fi device? You know, you have a Linksys router and you never changed it. So the, you know, your default username is blank and your password is admin and you go and somebody hijacked your account, you know, war driving or even war sitting in an apartment complex. It's a story I've told many times. My friend wouldn't share his Wi-Fi password with me when I went to visit him. So I just hopped on one and I had a choice of a half a dozen unprotected accounts I could get on. Um, but even, if you just know the basic passwords, you're in and you you have their IP address is what it traces to, and then you've downloaded it. So this person didn't even know porn ever came across their network. And the next thing they know, they're subpoenaed and they're like, oh, crap, I don't want people to think I download porn, so I'm going to pay up, you know, and then have a talk with my kid later or something. So, you know, yay, yay for this ruling that. Just because you have an IP address, that doesn't prove who downloaded it. Yeah. Which, unfortunately, I don't think this will stand. It'll be appealed on some legal technicality uh, because I, I know law enforcement likes to use that. They right. like to track down IP IP addresses to to track down nefarious uses. Um, and I don't blame them for that. It's a useful tool in their arsenal, but it is not without error. Um, and in the case of you know kitty porn accusing somebody is no different than convicting them the accusation yeah. is enough to ruin their life and so if somebody within a block of me uses my ip address to download kitty porn and they come and they come and arrest me it can it doesn't matter how many times i'm exonerated the pope himself could make a public pronouncement that i'm innocent and it won't matter my life is over 
I am unhirable. I am unmarriable. My life is over for something that I had no idea was going on. This is a problem. It, yes, it's a useful tool, but it's it's like an antibiotic that that cures the virus, uh, cures the bacteria by killing you. You know, once you're dead, the bacteria doesn't have anything to feed on. They they die too. Congratulations, 100 percent effective. But it's not it's not something we want to do, and it's not a road we want to go down. And it, and I'm not a privacy nut, but I want to I want people to pay uh, to be held responsible for the things they actually did, not the things it looked like they did. Uh, and this is this is just too nebulous. It's too easy to spoof an IP address. It's too easy to fake a location. The the innocent guy won't know how, and therefore won't be able to prove that he didn't. Because at that point, you're in the in the in the situation of having to prove a negative. You have to prove you didn't do it, instead of the law proving that you did. Um, and so I yeah. hope this uh, stands up. I really do, but I don't think it will. It's too good yeah. a tool for law enforcement to use. Guilty, even if proven innocent. Right. Unfortunately, that is the standard uh, in today's society in a lot of times. Over, Well, anyway, we that'll be on uh, everyday politics uh, later on in the week. So. <laughs> well, I, I, just a quick story. Again, it's not technology, and feel free to fast forward five minutes if you don't want to hear this. But I, I've experienced this personally through a guy I know, a good, upstanding guy um, who had been a, a Boy Scout leader for like 40 years a kid accused him of doing something wrong because the kid was mad at him and he knew that would get him in trouble this this is nine-year-old logic you know you've i've i've heard nine-year-olds say i will call and report you for child abuse to their parents because you know that's nine-year-old logic well this this nine-year-old reported the guy uh for sexually abusing him um and it it was proven beyond a doubt that it could not have happened. The guy wasn't even near the kid at the time. He wasn't even in the same city. But that didn't matter. The fact that he was accused ruined his life. And he was thrown out of the of the scouts. Not only that, but he almost lost his job. Uh, he did lose his dean position at the university, uh, but they let him keep his job, all for something he did not do. And it was proven in court, even the kid who had accused him admitted later that it was a lie and he didn't do it. But none of that matters. The innocence is irrelevant. It's the fact that you were accused that's important. And so as, when, when things like this can serve as a buffer uh, between the accused and, and the guilty, I think that's a good thing. All right. Yep. That's my, my, my speech, my rant, my uh, soapbox, and I'm going to go on. So this one time, uh, a guy downloading porn did us all a favor. Um, and speaking of historical events, Seth, what happened this week in history? Okay. March 30th, 1951, Dr. John Mach, anyway, these two guys unveiled <laughs> the universe. Yeah. The universal atomic computer or the Univac one, uh, Univac was the actual second commercial computer commissioned in april of 1946 but delivered in march of 1951 man can you imagine in today's society five years to deliver a computer yeah that's uh that's how much it costs um uh that's how long it took back then but um this week in history 1951 the univac one 
was unveiled. And it was so big and so heavy that uh, it was developed for the Census Bureau. The Census Bureau started using it before it was moved to their location. So um, it wasn't transported for several months. But, um, you know, it's basically the size of a closet um, and was huge uh and here's this the final computer costs nearly one million dollars that's adjusted for inflation today or if adjusted no, no. for inflation yeah. it would be 10 times that amount it had 5200 vacuum tubes and consumed 125 kilowatts running 1905 operations a second on a 2.5 megahertz clock 2.25. Let's not give it yeah, more I'm credit sorry. than it deserves. Two, well, maybe they overclocked it. <laughs> a hun- 1,905 operations a second. Um, your USB mouse probably does more than that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, and that was, it was huge. 2.25 megahertz. Weighed um, 29,000 pounds. And took up 35 and a half square meters of floor space. That's, uh, that's the floor of an office building. Like if you, if you work in a cube farm, probably your whole floor is about 35 square meters. Right. That's a hundred feet, roughly a hundred feet in, in four directions. Yes. Um, the Univac had an add time of 120 microseconds. A multiply time of 1,800 microseconds and a divide time of 3,600 microseconds. It input with magnetic tape at the speed of 12,800 characters per second. Yeah, that's 12,000 uh, baud. Yeah. Uh, yeah. R- read in a hundred inches per second. It recorded 20 characters per inch. Um, wow. That, that's amazing. Uh, and the, the thing that made the UNIVAC kind of stand out in history is, uh, it accurately predicted Eisenhower's victory, um, in the 1952 presidential election. And after so, they built that one, they built 45 more copies. They were customers for this thing. They, you know, it wasn't just a, an oddity. It was something people wanted. Yeah. And it wasn't like, Hey, I'm going to go down and buy a computer. It's like, I'm going to order a computer. Will you make one and let me know when it's done? Yeah. Five years. So, from now. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the, that's where we started, right? The uh, ENIAC and the EDVAC, uh, came next, if I remember correctly, uh, from my eighth grade computer history class. Um, and then once the transistors started replacing tubes, it was on. Yeah. And, you know, all of that leads to downloading porn. You know, we wouldn't be able to download porn so easily. Um, you know, we'd have to go to cheesy strip clubs to see boobs, uh, if it weren't for the, uh, this computer back yeah. in its day. You'd have to wear your, uh, hat and sunglasses and your trench coat with the collar, <laughs> um, flipped up and walk and go to a gas station out of town where you might could convince someone you were over 18. Um, yeah. not that I would have any experience with that. <laughs> but. Well, I remember those quote unquote motorcycle magazines. Yeah, I remember those. Um, anyway, uh, sorry, Anthony, this is the transition you get into the linuxacademy.com ad where if you want to learn how to do better transitions than this, 
maybe they can help you out. But no, what does the LinuxAcademy.com do? They are designed, uh, their whole purpose is to take you from being a, a Linux beginner to a Linux administrator by walking you through their uh, over 200 amazing uh, high-quality training videos. It's not just training videos. You guys have heard this over and over again. Um, it's not just training videos. It's PDF study guides. It's practice tests. It's uh, online quizzes. It's a forum that we never mention uh, or not often enough. This great forum of other people who are on the same quest you're on, who can, you can learn from, and the instructors uh, feeding back and, and uh, participating in the forum. So you, you have that option. It's not just a static experience. It's not just you watching videos. There's this whole community of people on the same quest you are uh, to, to become a certified licensed Linux administrator. And they're all right there with you, uh, cheering you along, sharing your, your, um, questions and 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 your your successes and the the trainers are all right there too and and as we've had feedback here in the past somebody's like you know I've got a question or here's a suggestion and within a short amount of time the guys have have done it they've they've created the product they asked for or answered the question uh you know it's not just this static um set of videos like you know some of the other things on the internet are um it's not just a, a catalog of things that you watch. It's an actual community of caring people. These instructors are not only good at what they do, they're not only knowledgeable, they, but they actually care that you do well. It's important to them that you do well. Um, and, and they're going to give you all the tools that you need uh, to do it. Uh, you can start with a, a module, for example, the LPIC Level 1 uh, module. When you're done, they're, they're now certified by the LPIC. Um, uh, at the Linux Professional Institute, they're, they're certified as a training center. You can actually sign up through the LPI website, uh, to take their training there. They, they're, they're, they're real. They're the real deal. They're not just some guys who made this stuff up. So not only do you get this really high quality, but it's incredibly affordable. I don't want to use the word cheap because it's not cheap. It's high quality, but it's very affordable. If you just want to dip your toes in and just try it out, it'll cost you a dollar. Oh, a whopping dollar. Throw a dollar at them and they'll give you two weeks to poke around and see what you think. Watch the videos, download some stuff, take some tests, see if it's fit for you. They believe in their product so much that they're willing to to give that to you. Yeah, you could probably do some, some nefarious things. You could probably download more than you should and you could probably, you know, do all kinds of, of, of uh, unspeakable things in that 14 days, but they trust you and because they also trust themselves, they trust the content, they know you're going to come back. So when you come back, now they stick it to you. Now is when they really jack up the prices. How about 25 bucks a month? Well, you know, that may be a little steep. Okay, they'll knock that off. If you buy six months in a block, they'll knock it down to $20. If you buy a year, they'll knock it down to $19 a month. So you could you get this high-quality learning for $19 a month. Again, it's the videos. It's the quizzes. It's the, the downloadable study guides. It's the forum. It's the... the um, interaction with not only the trainers but other people yourself and also they now have this new feature this uh linux lab feature where it's an extra fee you you sign up you become a member but then you can also do this and and you get actual live labs uh of servers in and you can you can set up a server and set up a client and have them talk to each other in this uh, safe virtualized environment so that you're not blowing anything up but you actually get to do the stuff 
on their labs that they host on Amazon. So they're lightning fast and they're high quality. Um, and it's not just watching and, and taking notes. It's actually doing. You get to, you get to pause the video and go do what he said. And you get to, you get to play with it and, and all this for 20 bucks a month. Come on. How would you not do that? Just go. Just go to linuxacademy.com, use the referral code EverydayLinux, and let them know that you found about found out about it here. I would totally recommend that you do exactly what Mark said. Go there, take a look. Um, you know, one I didn't have any stories this week, but you can go find. You know, you can go to any dice or career builder or anything, and people want. Uh, companies want people who know how to use Linux. Um, they'll pay extra for that because there's not enough talent to support the Linux that is out there. And as I, as I do every week, Mark talks about this. I wait till he starts talking and see what can I find about pricing online. Well, I found this site today. And again, I'm not going to mention names, but you can earn a certificate for only $1,592 in tuition plus a registration fee of up to 20% of your tuition. Um, and, you know, total of 360 clock hours, and you can even get some continuing education units. But 1,592, and this is not this is not the most expensive one I have found. You know, it's not the cheapest one I have found out there either, but, you know, you're, you're, you're getting thousands of dollars worth of education at – a bargain basement price. It is, it is well worth your time if you want to get into the IT field. Um, you know, cause I mean, let's face it, most operating systems today, you can point and click your way around if you want, if you have enough time, but they teach you kind of what needs to be done and how to do it fastly and quickly through the command line, which this is the GUI kid saying, if you want to be in administration, you need to know your way around the command line. Um, and you will learn that at the Linux Academy. There you go. Once again, use the referral code Everyday Linux when you sign up, just to let them know that uh, their advertising dollars are paying off. Uh, and so here we go. Now, the the topic of this show, uh, Life After Linus, was uh, came to us in the form of a listener question. So I will read that. Kevin says, "Guys, I've been listening to y'all religiously for over a year, and in the last episode, you asked for show topic suggestions. Well, I have one, even if it's maybe not." Uh, going to be popular with the Linux faithful, I must ask and suggest, what happens to Linux, our beloved distro, if or when Linus Torvalds is no longer, either by accident, by design, or by old age, when he is no more? What happens to our beloved colonel when there's no longer a benevolent dictator? What happens when we're a ship without a captain? I leave the research to y'all if you even decide to take my topic live, but wanted to ask the question most Linux geeks refuse to fathom but must one day face. So, uh, Kevin, uh, we're not going to do any research. I don't, I, I, if you've been listening for a year, you're clearly missing the boat here. Um, right. We don't research. We're going to pontificate instead. We're going to bloviate, but we're not going to research. But it is an interesting thought experiment. And I'm sorry that the, the command line godfather isn't here with us because I'm sure he would have some thoughts on it as well. But what happens to Linux when Linux is no more? Um, as, as is relatively well known, he is, uh, you know, the benevolent dictator and he's not always that benevolent. He's the colonel guard. He's the guy who actually makes the commits and says, this is what's going to happen. This is my baby. He started this thing back in, God, I don't remember now, 90, 
one ninety two. Seth, uh, you just did this recently. It was uh, anyway. He started yeah, this thing. early nineties. Yeah, he was going to start uh, uh, his version of Unix, and um, the the guy who set up server space for it called it Linus's Unix, called it Linux for short. Um, and so here we are, and and he's been the guy all along. He's you know he's now employed by the Linux Foundation, and he uh, he's the guy. So what happens when the guy is no more? Seth, I'll let you start the discussion. Well, you know, I I don't know. There has to be somebody. So whether you know somebody has to be in charge because. If there isn't somebody in charge, th- there's there's two possible scenarios. There is another Linus who is the benevolent dictator who keeps going on. Um, and, you know, there might be some hiccups uh, and there will be some changing of the guard. It's like, well, you know, it just doesn't feel the same since Linus isn't here. I'm going to move on. But then new people will come in and there will be new blood. And hopefully there won't be a beat that is skipped. Linux will continue marching on and continue its inevitable path towards world domination. That would be March of the Penguins. Yes, that would be like the um that would be the glory victory hallelujah goal. But unfortunately what will probably happen is imagine Linux distributions applied to the kernel. Uh, because this guy says, well, I'm the only one who will follow in Linus's footsteps. So therefore I'm going to fork the kernel and we're going to have the Linux prime kernel and says, no, I'm true to life. We're going to have the Linux true kernel and this will go in that kernel, but then that won't go in that kernel. And then unfortunately what will probably happen is you'll break down into camps that just, I'm going to take my kernel and I'm going to go play over here. So instead of having all these developers working on the kernel to keep it going forward and to keep innovating at a breakneck pace that really nobody else can keep up with. You're going to have some of the developers work on this version of the kernel and some of the developers working on that version of the kernel, duplicating work, but being mad and not playing well with each other. And if that happens, it will be the death of Linux. Um, so you I know, hope I, that I, doesn't happen, but I, I don't see that scenario as being realistic because as contentious as the open source world is if the co if the kernel were going to fork it would have already Linus Torvalds is certainly a powerful personality but I don't think he himself is strong enough to hold things together I don't think he is the reason the kernel hasn't forked it probably already has but it the fact that we don't know about it is telling um because things that you know that fork they they die because they're they're not in the hands of of the Linux Foundation and I I think it's less I think maybe that's why the Linux Foundation came to be because you know there was more work than Torvalds could do um, and so the foundation uh, came into it and he didn't I don't think he started it but they actually hired him so it's it's he's now an employee of the Linux Foundation it's the Linux Foundation that's in charge of things. But we all know that that Torvalds is is the main guy, so he retires or you know passes on whatever. We'll just say retired. Um, he, he's he can't handle the the BS anymore, and he gives up and he retires, and he says, "I'm done with this." The Linux Foundation is still there, and all the work is still there. All the, in, the organizational infrastructure is still there, and I think that as contentious as the Linux community is, as the open source community is, they they recognize a good thing when they see it. They see that having a unified kernel, a code base that everybody works from, 
is a good thing. And I don't think that'll change. Sure, somebody, there, there may be an internal power struggle or whatever, but I think in the end, one will rise. And maybe it's the most dominant personality. Maybe it's the most organized uh, uh, entity. Maybe it's the, the the biggest pockets. I don't know. But if there's infighting, one will rise, and that will become the source code. And so while I think uh, Torvalds is is valuable, I don't think he's irreplaceable. And I think uh, certainly uh, in the event of his retirement, these plans will already be laid out. They will already be a path of succession. He will name his, uh, you know, his, the new president for life. But, you know, if he, if he gets hit by a boss and is taken from us suddenly, I have to think there are already contingency plans in place. You know, the, <laughs> the people who do this sort of thing are planners, right? Kernel developers are in their nature. They're planners. They have a plan for everything. Um, I'm reminded of that line in, in uh, uh, Hunt for Red October. The average Ruski son don't take a dump without a plan. There's a plan, uh, and and it's it will be followed. So I don't I don't think it's going to be a big deal. Then again, maybe I just have my rose colored glasses on. You know i I hope what you're saying is true. Um, and I don't know the technical term for this, or whether it's just an observation I am making off of too limited data, but. It seems to me that people go in a straight line and follow the leader because everybody else is following the leader and there's really almost nothing holding them together. And that works great until the first significant person breaks off. And then all of a sudden, once that first person, that first fork happens, the amount of strength required to keep the whole going you have to divert so much to that. And I kind of think that, you know, Linus, it, it was his code. You know, he's the one who wrote it. And, you know, he said he doesn't code anymore, um, but he's the one in charge and it's his and nobody has really thought, you know, I'm sure somebody has said, well, I'm going to try my own thing. And then it kind of petered out, but they didn't dare call it Linux because they knew it wasn't Linux. But what happens when that force that he is there to exert is not there anymore and somebody attempts to break off and takes two or three people with them. Well, maybe it fizzles out, maybe it peters out, maybe it comes to nothing. But that first fork attempt post him will be the most damaging. And maybe it happens the day after, maybe it's a week, a month, a year, 10 years later. Um, it'll go fine until some point where he wasn't there to say, I'm in charge. This is the way we're doing it. And because it's always been that way, nobody questions. Somebody will say, well, why should you be in charge? I've been here just as long as you have. I might not have the title, but I've got the same credibility. So I'm going to do my own thing. Um, that's the danger that happens. Well, yeah, but there's already BSD. There are already other unices out there. Um, and there's a reason that people have uh, rallied around the Linux kernel more than the other kernels. I I am not a not um, enough of a developer to know what those reasons are, but I don't think it was you know first first movers advantage. I don't think that that uh, BSD isn't as popular as Linux just because of Torvalds. 
maybe maybe that's the case. Maybe BSD just never got the the organization uh, that the the Linux kernel did. You know, and and there's still Unix out there, right? That that that's still a thing. Uh, you got to pay for it, and maybe that's its demise. Um, but I just think that there's that the reasons that Linux is at the top of the heap in the the kernel world right now, the open source kernel world, those reasons aren't all Torvalds. There are other reasons for it. I don't, I'm not educated enough to know what they are, but I, I don't think it all comes down to that one guy. I think that the, the kernel dictator can be anybody as long as they're ruthless enough to be a good kernel dictator. You know, and here is a great show topic we will never do because of the amount of work required. But <laughs> if we looked at those other kernels, um, you know, BSD, uh, free BSD, all, all the different things and see, you know, what kind of developmental staff do they have? And we could even look at the, um, the GNU kernel, um, some type of cow name. I don't remember the name, but, uh, you know, we could even, you know, how much development do they have versus how much development does Linux have? Uh, you know, Linux came about at the dawn of the internet, basically, you know, I mean, granted the, the internet, the way we know it wasn't there, but message groups, uh, user groups, bulletin boards, you know, and the, the tech savvy people had those and they had been around for a little bit. Um, and then boom, Linux burst on the scene with that. And so it kind of rallied those people together. Hey, you know, I equate technology with Linux because it came out at the same time to me. So I'm enveloped in that. Whereas these others came about before or later, you know, there was a certain time that came to that, but does Linux have 10 times the developmental staff of BSD? If it does, to me, that would explain why it's 10 times better. Um, you know, or, or the developers that much better. Um, again, I think that would be an interesting show to compare the, uh, developmental potential of the different kernels that are out there. Uh, and again, that, that would take a lot of work. So I, I don't look for that anytime soon. Um, but I would love to answer that or to know the answer to that question to have a more um a more um have this discussion based in more fact. It would uh, be a quick a quick search here wikia.com uh lists three main trunks of kernels. There's the Unix like kernel which includes Linux and OpenMosix uh and SE Linux uh and then there's the original Berkeley Unix BSD which includes uh it's it's Progeny include FreeBSD, PicoBSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD, OpenSolaris, uh, Darwin, uh, which is uh, the base of Mac, uh, Mac OS XX, um, and then Herd, the GNU one. And there are no progeny of Herd. There's nothing uh, out there. Uh, but then there's others. Uh, there's um, Syllable. Uh, it's a fork of the Athe OS. I don't know what that is. Uh, it's similar to, but not a clone of the BOS. Uh, and then there are other Windows-like kernels, React OS and Wine. That's that's a bad example. It shouldn't be there. And then, of course, there are DOS kernels as well. So there are other kernels out there. And, you know, Linux is the truest, I think, to the Unix kernel. and Unix was popular, so Linux became popular because it was the most like Unix.
is that what keeps it? Is it is it the is it the the skeleton, the the DNA of Unix that makes it popular, or is it the the person of Linus Torvalds that makes it popular? I think the former over the latter. I think it's it grew up as the thing that most people were using, and it was the most liked the thing that most people were using, and so it has continued to be the thing that most people are using, and I think it will continue to be. Now, will we lose something when Linus Torvalds dies or retires? Sure, absolutely. Just like we'll lose something when Stallman uh, dies or retires, just like we've uh, lost things, uh, you know, when when great people who've gone before uh, have have left us. But that doesn't mean that it's it's you know uh, an insurmountable insurmountable holder hurdle. Wow, I can't talk. Uh, I really think that it's just going to be the Linux Foundation appoints a new dictator. And we go on. And I think it has to be a dictator. It has to be a president for life. <laughs> you have to you have to have somebody who has ultimate control that says this gets in and this doesn't. And hopefully that person is reasonable and listens to arguments. Uh, but in the end, it's got to be, uh, you know, a, a dictatorship or maybe an oligarchy at the, at the worst. You know, a couple of people who make those decisions. Um, and I think that's the reason the model works well. These other kernels that exist are maybe death by committee. There wasn't a single person, and that's why they could never really get off the ground. Maybe the GNU herd kernel uh, isn't isn't a thing because there hasn't been somebody as strong as Torvalds to lead it. But once it's led, once it's there, I don't think you have to have that person to continue it. But see, the the first time that there's a big decision post-Linus that the, whoever the dictator is says we're not doing you know we're choosing b over a because i think b is better well the the strongest leader of a says well i'm leaving and i'm taking 20% of the developers with me so you've just you've just damaged linux by 20% moving forward and they decide to you know and and we'll say and they move to free bsd and say we're going to develop for free bsd and i'm going to be in charge of that well you've slowed the pace of linux and you've increased the pace of another one so you know that's that's the fear that i see and and you know and again maybe it'll work out better long term it'll be leaner meaner better able to move forward but i think the kernel will be hurt the first crisis of inclusion that happens post linux Hurt but not destroyed. Right, and it could be death of a thousand cuts from that point. That's true. For, for some reason, this whole discussion has reminded me of Julius Caesar, and and you know uh, Brutus stabbing him in the in the spleen, and you know this is the most unkindest cut of all. Maybe maybe the reason that that Torvald's leads will is that his right hand man will overthrow him. Um, I don't know. It's just I don't know why that parallel is there. Maybe because I recently reread it, uh, but it's it was just there in my mind that uh, this is we're talking about the the successor to Julius Caesar. And will will Linux be a republic or a dynasty? Will it be an emperor uh, uh, <laughs> empire or or democracy? Well, I mean, because look at Apple. I I think everybody would agree that Apple has changed since Steve Jobs is no longer there. And when he left the first time. Really, the company almost died. died. Yeah. So, you know, that's the model you have to look at. And again, you can argue that, you know, Linux isn't Apple, blah, blah, blah. But the similarity of leadership 
and again, I'm not saying they lead the same way, but you would, I think anybody would have to agree that there is at least a similarity in leadership of the two. So, you know, what happened to Apple the first time and what is happening to Apple now? Are they still innovating or are they kind of just cleaning out the pipes of what was already in the works? And, and you know, and some people don't like it just because Steve isn't there anymore and they were Apple people because they were Steve people. Um, so do you think Linus Torvalds has fans? Do you think there are people who use Linux and support the Linux kernel just because of him? I don't, I don't, I've never seen that cult of personality around him. You know, I mean, there isn't the Linus worship that there was the Steve Jobs worship, but there is the Linus rock star. Like there is like the Steve Jobs rock star. He has a certain cred in the technology community. Um, whereas Steve Jobs cred was the, um, was the yuppies who had too much money to spend. Uh, so, you know, it's a different circle. One is very visible to the public. The other isn't so visible to the public, but maybe the, um, and again, I don't think it was. Because, you know, the tech people, they already have too many things vying for their attention. There's lerping. There's uh, D&D. <laughs> there's miniatures. LARPing. There's comics. LARPing. You know, LARP, Live action LARP. role play. Uh, you know. By the way, just in case you're wondering, I took to calling it Linus because he was calling him Linus. And I just wanted to make sure we were well represented across the board. <laughs> it's probably closer to Linus. Uh, but anyway. I just, I, I intentionally took that if you're listening and it's driving you nuts. Um, so we, you kind of have two different things here. I think that it will be almost a non-event. And Seth thinks that the passing itself might not be a big event, but it will be a portender of, of blood in the water in the future. So interesting. I would have said harbinger of things to come just because I don't know what words you just used. <laughs> <laughs> same thing um so yeah I, again i i'm sorry that chris wasn't here to to weigh in because you know he is he is more of a kernel geek than either of us you know put together uh we we don't reach his level of geekosity uh so now i put the question to you the listener um what do you think will happen post torvalds something's gonna happen and it's it's inevitable, as Kevin, the the listener who posed the question, put it. Nobody lives forever, um, not even Linus Torvalds. Um, so what happens? What happens? You know, uh, let me throw that out. There. What happens when Stallman dies? When when he is no more? I, I say dies because he's not going to retire. He, this this is his life. You don't retire from the only thing you were born to do. Um, so. You know, what happens when Stallman dies? Do do we need that instigator? Um, is the world lessened when these people go? Yeah, I'll give you that. But are things destroyed? Are empires going to crumble because of it? What do you think? The way you can let us know is go over to elementop.com, use the Contact Us button at the top of the page, or the Leave Us a Voicemail widget uh, on the right-hand side of the page. And in that case, Google Voice will give you a call, and you can do like Door-to-Door Geek did and um, put your voice here on the show uh, in a very real way. Or if you're just an email kind of guy and you want to to cut through the cut to the chase, uh, EDL, open your mutt 
client and uh, type EDL at elementop.com and that'll come to the three of us and we will read it. We love to hear what you have to say. And, you know, somebody out there agrees with me. Somebody agrees with Seth, but there's probably a larger audience out there saying you totally missed X. Well, tell us what X is. What did we miss? What's uh, what did we leave out? And uh, we will certainly give you uh, your uh, comment, the attention it's due. That is a that is a promise I make. Maybe the attention it's due is to ignore it. But I promise I will give it the attention it's due. Uh, Again, elementop.com. And we uh, look forward to hearing. Also, let's not forget the bad movie forums. Uh, uh, Super Cyclone has been added to that list. And I promise, Joe, I will watch it. Um, I just can't say when. Uh, I got nothing else. Seth, what about you? Well, you know, I wanted to... um throw out a link this week and this requires reading on your part listener it kind of talks about how the area code um system evolved in the phone numbers um it was just an interesting read um historical trivia that kind of area code today might not be such a big deal but how we got here i think is kind of good to know so there you go. Read about why we have area codes and how they ended up the way they did. If you would like to follow my link for this week, um, you know, I can't give you funny every week or it just becomes a model of the absurd. So here is uh, something to enrich your brain and help you win a bar bet. Maybe. So uh, interesting trivia. It may be in the article. It may not be. Uh, area codes were determined based on the population of the city and the time it took to dial them on a rotary phone. So, for example, New York is 212. That's pretty quick. Yep, yep, yep. California there's a, has the area code 909. <laughs> so that one takes a long time. Um, and that's just an interesting thing. Well, I, I grew up in, uh, a, a, uh, an area code that went from 214 to 903. And they were still rotary dial phones at the time. That made a big change in my life. It took me now 30 seconds longer to dial a number than it used to. Uh, on the plus side, we weren't using 10-digit calling back then. In fact, I didn't even have to dial, the the extension was 496. I didn't have to dial that. I could just dial 6 in the, in the other digits. It was such a small town. So it wasn't that big a deal. And, of course, now you don't think about it. Boop, 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 boop. It doesn't matter. Well, you can touch any three things. But back in the days of the rotary, company uh, uh, municipalities fought over which area code they should get based on how long it took to dial it on a rotary phone. Yeah, and here is an interesting bit of totally useless trivia I discovered in college. Um, on the old rotary dial phones, you could either dial the number or you could hit the um, the hang-up real quick. So, like, if you were going to dial 214, you go dun-dun, and then dun, and then dun-dun-dun-dun, and then you could dial out your number that way. I, I had a broken phone one time, and that was how I had to dial. So all that pulse so, dialing was doing was hanging up and answering in rapid succession. Well, you were you were basically creating a pulse yeah. whenever you just dun-dun, you know, yeah. by hanging it's up. funny. So uh, uh, you had a broken yeah. phone, and you hacked the system. That's That's a geek right there, ladies and gentlemen. Figured out how to keep his broken phone a little longer. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I don't know if you remember the frog phone I had in college. Uh, <laughs> no. But I think that one might have been it. And uh, most systems today will still do pulse dialing. In fact, most phones, you can dial a code or flip a switch and it'll pulse dial. 
but good luck trying to get to a switchboard when it says press enter for press one for English. Yeah, never going to happen there. Yeah, that that is why to this day most places you call if you don't do anything will eventually ring through to a human. Yeah, um, you know, um, which I had one time that just said. I'm sorry, we cannot understand your thing. Click and hung up on me. I was yeah. like, ah, so I had to call back and hit zero until it let me talk to someone. But in, in our trip back to Texas recently, we stayed with a, a, a couple who's a friend of ours. They have an old uh, early 1900s vintage farmhouse and they have outfitted it with a lot of 1900s vintage things, including the phone in one of the rooms was an old wall phone that, you know, was with a cord and a dial and my daughters didn't know what it was. They didn't recognize it as a phone. Um, not only did they not know how to operate it, they didn't know what it was. They, that, what is that thing there? Well, that's a phone. No, it's not. I've never seen a phone like that before. That's big, and it's got a thing, and it's, there's bells. What is that? So it's just a, an interesting generation gap there. Man, we should have had that in our history of technology, history of communication episode. That was good stuff. <laughs> I think I may have mentioned the the Erie code thing once before. Anyway, that's it. I'm wrapping it up. Uh, sorry, uh, Chris didn't make it back. I I hope you got your basement um, uh, items up to to higher ground. Um, that's that's a terrible thing when when you because you know basement is where you put all the stuff that you care about but you don't use every day. And then you start to see water coming in. That's bad. So we wish Chris well on that. Thank you, listener, for listening. Thanks those who who watched live and uh, interacted in the chat room. We always enjoy that. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to say that ends this episode of the.